where accountability is key. This is Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, Canada. I hope you're having a great day. My name is not Evan Solomon. I'm sitting in for Evan Solomon today. My name is Mark Tui. Evan will be back with you uh, tomorrow afternoon in his regularly scheduled time and place. I guess it could be the morning, depending on where you're listening from. Uh, throughout the program today, we're going to keep an eye on what's happening in Ottawa, because RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky is uh, testifying before the... Uh, well, actually, she's not in Ottawa. She's in uh, Nova Scotia, testifying at the Mass Shooting Commission for that uh, horrific uh, mass shooting that uh, happened uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago. I can't even recall. Anyway, we're interested to hear what she said after a number of senior RCMP uh, officers have kind of pointed the finger at her, saying that in a meeting with them, she said the uh, government was putting pressure on her, or she intimated that the government was putting pressure on her to release information that the police didn't want to have released about the type of firearms used by Gabriel Wartman when he uh, killed all those uh, 20, 22 people in Halifax when he was dressed up like an RCMP officer. So we'll keep an eye on what she says. Anything that she says of importance, and I'm sure she'll say something, uh, we'll try to bring you uh, that during the course of the program. But coming up in the show today, the you may have seen many news reports about Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, airplane habits. Not what he does on the plane, but where he goes in the plane. Uh, Brian Passifium, a reporter for National Post, previously with the Toronto Star- Sun, pardon me, uh, he's written a number of articles, as have other journalists, looking into where the Prime Minister and his airplane is at any particular given time. And some of those stories have proven embarrassing to the Prime Minister. So... Earlier this year, the prime minister's office, well, actually, it wasn't, well, we don't know that it was them, but it, it seems fair to assume that they probably had some input. The National Defense uh, Department, the Royal Canadian Air Force, asked their colleagues in the United States at the Federal Aviation Administration to block the prime minister's aircraft and a number of other call signs of Air Force and government jets so that journalists couldn't track them. Presumably, one of this would be because of uh, national security concerns, right? We don't want terrorists to know where a Can Force One—that's our version of Air Force One—where Can Force One is in the sky at any particular moment. But is it really a security concern? We'll talk with one open-source intelligence expert who tracks airplanes around the world all the time to get a sense for how secretive is this blockage, or is this really just an attempt by the government to? perhaps avoid or minimize some embarrassing stories in the future. But first, I'm going to enlist your help. That's right. We, you and me, together, we're going to solve health care. Right now, right here, on the radio, national program, coast to coast to coast, as Evan likes to say. And, uh, and I'm going to be looking for some good ideas. So if you've got some great ideas... Get them bubbling in the back of your head. And I'm going to tell you why I want them. We'll take your calls in a few minutes. But the premiers of Ontario, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island met yesterday to discuss how to fix Canada's health care system. The problems that all our health care systems uh, uh, share, and they do share, this, none of the problems are new. None of the problems are unique to your province, my province. They're shared by every province, every territory across the country. 
There's a shortage of nurses and of doctors. There's burnt out health care workers of every description. There's understaffed ERs and ICUs. Uh, University of British Columbia Hospital had uh, to put sort of office hours on its ER the other day. ERs have closed in Ontario. They have closed in other parts of British Columbia. They've closed across the country, as have ICUs, restricted hours. In many cases, some of these places show so short staffed that they just don't well, you can't you can't get hurt after hours in Clearwater, B.C. because the emergency room is closed and you can't call an ambulance because they only have one. And so a lot of people, according to the mayor of Clearwater, have to drive themselves to Kamloops, B.C. to get to an emergency room. That's not health care as we imagine it being in Canada. There's been long wait lists for essential and desirable surgeries, diagnostic tests, other procedures. That's the norm in this country, even before the uh, COVID came. And now after COVID, we're faced with this magentic, that's a new word, magentic pile of backlogs of surgeries and other procedures. It's all made worse by the pandemic, of course. And of course, there's not enough money to go around. The problems are not unique just to one province. They are across the problem, across the country. But where are the solutions? The premiers came out of their meeting yesterday with fresh demands for more money from the federal government. But that is not the solution. More money isn't going to fix this. Healthcare is a bottomless bucket, folks. And no matter how much water or money you pour into an em- a bucket with no hole, no bottom on it, it's never going to be full. We've got to fix the bucket. Calls for more money are not the solution. They're part of the problem. And although the premiers came out and said, look, we need innovative solutions, that's the right move. The Ontario government put forward some innovative solutions the other day, but of course the opposition parties poo-pooed them because that's their job. But when a premier comes forward and says what we need is more money from the federal government, they're the problem. When the federal government says, look, we gave you lots of money, you spent it on license plate rebates, they're the problem. When you and I point our fingers at our premiers and our governments, no matter what province we live in, we're the problem. If you're a nurse and you're represented by a union or you're a doctor with an association or you're in the healthcare service or you're a hospital association, when you point fingers at everybody else, you are the problem. When you're in opposition, MP or MPP or local politician, and you you point out as the NDP in Ontario did, well, none of this meeting is going to... You're the problem. If the first thing out of your words is, these guys are bad, you're the problem. If the first words out of your mouth are, we don't want two-tier health care, you are the problem. If the first words out of your mouth faced with health care challenges are, we can't just survive in a public system, we, you're the problem. We need to stop with this, yeah, but mentality. We need some innovative, new, fresh ideas. And like any organization faced with a huge problem it has to solve, it starts with brainstorming. So stop with the criticism of every idea that's thrown at the wall and just start writing them on the wall. Just start collecting every possible good idea you can. We'll judge them later. But if your job is just to cast aspersions, if your job is just to pick the lint out of the solution, then you, my friend, and me, we are the problem. We've been trying to fix health care for 50 years. Universal health care brought in in the 50s, that was an attempt to fix health care because it didn't work. Well, that hasn't worked. It hasn't stood the test of time. 
We are perennially trying to fix health care, but more money is not going to fix it. We're running out of money. We already spend 30 cents of every tax dollar nationwide goes to health care. In Ontario, it's 40 cents almost. There isn't any money. And that's only, that's, that's 178, 180 some odd billion dollars. And that's just 70% of the cost of health care. 30% comes out of your pocket still. Beautiful, wonderful universal health care system. You still have to pay 30% of the cost. So just more money. That's not the answer. If that's all you want, you're the problem. Making it like the Americans, that's the, there, there is the only health care system in the Western world that is worse than ours in terms of patient outcome is the United States. That's not the answer, but very few people are suggesting it is. But if you're saying, well, we don't want American health, well, then you're the problem. Stop with the it can't and start looking at, well, it might. The government in Ontario, most of our governments have put some ideas on the table. Great. Let's try them. Take a few risks here. Because what we're doing right now, the status quo, as Doug Ford of Ontario said, it's not an option. It's not working for us. Do you have any good ideas? I don't want to hear yes, but. I want to hear your brilliant, half-baked idea that might work. I'm going to give you 45 seconds to make your pitch. Give us a call right now, one 833 Let's get some ideas flowing. We're not going to judge them. We're just going to get them out there. Because you know what? Decision makers listen to this show. And so when you speak on air with me, they hear you. If you've got a great idea, they'll hear it. Mark Julian for Evan Solomon today. We'll be back with your great ideas at 1-855-633-1010 on The Evan Solomon Show, the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui sitting in for Evan Solomon today. Evan will be back with you tomorrow. The, uh, a number of premiers met yesterday trying to divine what might be the solution to Canada's forever health care problem. This isn't something that just started in your province or my province. This isn't just something that started since COVID. We have been trying to fix health care since we created universal health care. That was an attempt to fix it. It obviously hasn't stuck because every year lineups get longer, waiting lists get longer, and we spend more and more and more and more money. We can't afford to spend much more money because there just isn't that much more money to spend. The premiers came out of their meeting uh, saying that, you know, they needed some innovation, innovative answers, and they're absolutely right. But then the first thing that some of them went to is, well, the feds need to pay more. More money is not going to fix this because eventually we're going to run out of money. Canada spends $264 billion every year on health care. 30% of that comes out of your pocket directly for user-paid services. Only 70% is funded by taxpayers in any way, shape, or form. But that 70% that's funded across Canada represents $0.30 almost on every tax dollar you give to any government anywhere. In places like Ontario, it's almost $0.40, and it goes up by 6%, well over two, three, four, five times the inflation rate typically in an average year. We, we've only got maybe 10 years before we're spending all of our tax dollars on health care, none of it on police, none of it on fire, none of it on defense, none of it on education, none of it on anything else. So more money isn't the answer. What is? Well, the premiers want innovative answers, so let's give them some. Okay? 
You've got 45 seconds, the number to call right now, right here, 855-633-1010. There's some great answers on the text board. Uh, might get to some of those. But let's hear what you have to say. I want to hear your. I want to hear an idea. You've got 45 seconds to make your pitch. We're not going to judge it. We're going to move on. Uh, I'm going to skip over Jim in Port Hope for now. We'll come back to you, Jim. Right now it says that the pro- you think the problem is money. I don't, like, fine. Yeah, you're the problem. I'm the problem. That's not the solution. We need creative ideas. That's not one of them. Let's go to uh, James in Saskatoon. 45 seconds. What's a creative idea that might help healthcare? So there's kind of three of them, and they are primarily get rid of unions and the hospital administration. B, uh, don't allow doctors to control your records. Your records should be your responsibility. And third, we need to have competitive health care delivery models that compete with one another, not only on cost, but also on service delivery of outcomes for patients. Thank you so much for having this conversation. Thanks, Canadians are desperate for it. Thanks. Yeah, I think we need to, because quite frankly, we don't have a structure in our government to do this. So it's kind of up to us. Let's come up with some creative ideas. Let's keep going. Mark in Toronto, 45 seconds. What's your big idea? The idea is it's a simple supply-demand thing, and the demand is the problem. The demand is the people. The people uh, need to start taking some responsibility. If you get a hip replacement, I'd love to see a bill when you leave the hospital. That you have to pay, or just so you know how much it costs? No, no, just just, just so you see it. So people start recognizing. Break down your $246 billion into how many people are diabetic. What are the major causes of increases? What is the demand side? How do you control the demand there you side? Go. Thanks very much. As a group of people. Thanks, Mark. Uh, interesting idea. Make sure everybody knows how much they just consumed. Peter in Caledon, what's your big idea? Hey, yeah, my big idea is basically um, why don't we do a nationally funded uh, education system for med school, open up a national school. Currently, our new grads can't even get into med school in Canada because there's so many limited spots. Yeah. Opening up a national care program. Uh, opening up those seats that would produce more doctors uh, and new students that would help produce in more one way. Doctors ways. produce more nurses. Also, Thanks, my Peter. Second idea, quickly, is just a modest copay, five bucks, ten bucks to go see your family doctor. Fair enough. So many people in there. Thanks. That, you know, could be fixed. For, Thanks, Peter. Your time is up. Two uh, interesting ideas. We'll put those on the board. Stephen in Stony Creek. What's your big idea? Forty-five seconds, sir. Hi, uh, Mark. I. Um I'm under the understanding that administrative employees in our healthcare system make up at least 60% of the workforce, and I'm pretty sure they all got pay raises over the pandemic, while nurses who were working the front line didn't. So maybe it, we it should probably depends on the province, but yeah, let's look at that ratio of tooth to tail. I like it. Uh, let's go to Chris in uh, Keswick. You've got 45 seconds for your big idea. Go yes, ahead. Yes. Good. Good afternoon. I just wanted to say that I believe if we made that. Uh, education for nurses free and stipulate that they have to work in Canada for at least seven years, that would be beneficial to everybody. Make it easier for people to decide if they want to become nurses. Make it free education. I like it. In the end, it's an investment for the people. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. It costs a fortune to become a nurse because so much education is required. I don't know whether it's all actually needed or not, but let's look into it. Ottawa, Scott, your big idea. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, well, I've got two. Here's the first one. Gut Health Canada they got 25,000 employees here, and I don't know what they're doing, but they're certainly not doctors and nurses. And I know that's part of the tier, is to have uh, Health Canada is all part of this. So start looking at how Okay, serious. move on to the second one. Yeah, the second one, real quick. We need a two-tier system because private business 
teaches government how to operate. They have every vested interest in profit and to run it efficiently. Government does not. Okay. Bring in Thank- a two-tier system. Thanks, government can learn from private. Uh, Alan in Etobicoke, what's your big idea? Thanks for taking the call. Great callers. I would uh, agree with most. We've got to reduce the bureaucracy. More money to the frontline service. Not just about the money, but staffing. You've got to come up with a hybrid model. So you've got to have a, I don't want to call it two-tier, but you've got to have some private supporting the public system. Last, doctors and nurses coming out of a highly subsidized education system. We highly subsidize doctors' education in Canada. There needs to be requirements put on them to work a certain number of hours in certain communities in certain areas. They can't come out of medical school and just decide to work two or three days a week. Thanks very much. Uh, Let's have another big idea from Toronto. Sam, you've got 45 seconds. Yeah, Mark, there's a system in Germany where the government controls. One government controls all the health system, all the money. Not like Toronto, Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan, all these people. We have too much overhead in the government system. That's an interesting point. Thanks uh, very much for that, Sam. Somebody in the text board agrees and one of the previous callers. You know, maybe somebody in the text board says, pick one level of government and have it do everything. Maybe that's the federal government, so there is one health department, not 15. Uh, Patrick, in Hamilton, you've got 45 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's a a whole lot of responsibility on the people's part. People are so unhealthy for eating improper foods, junk foods, processed foods. Taxes could be put on those to discourage people from eating that and eating more healthily. And also, I think a very small amount of money should be paid for every tax, uh, for every prescription or, or, or doctor's visit, because people often That's take a copay idea. to different doctors. Thanks very much for that. Yeah, somebody else on the text board uh, points out, why don't we provide more incentives for people to live more healthy lives, and then they wouldn't need as much. Uh, Donna, 45 seconds. Go ahead. Yes, hi there. Um, nurse practitioners are never mentioned, and that's something that uh, we're forgetting about. I personally am a nurse practitioner. I went to school for a total of 11 years. I do primary care. It's private. Patients pay to be seen, and that is something that is not recognized hmm. in this at all. It's like we do exactly what physicians do. We can order labs, like x-rays, uh, CAT scans, MRIs, but no one, everyone says doctors and nurses, but forgets about the nurse practitioner aspect. Thanks, things, Donna. Which... I appreciate it. Good idea. I'm going to squeeze one more in. Warren in Toronto, get the last word. you got 45 seconds. Good morning. Uh, basically, I think that we should be using worldwide best practices, restructure our system entirely to the best model that's there, and then use innovation and technology to improve on those numbers, as well as get rid of all of the high overhead that we have compared to other models. Thanks, Warren. I appreciate that. On the front line. Interesting point. A couple of people raising that point. Look, there are a lot of different ways that people do healthcare. There's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. In Canada, we tend to narrow our focus down. We either do it our way or we do it like the Americans. Well, the two worst performing healthcare systems in all Western developed countries are Canada and the United States. The only place that has worse patient outcomes than Canada is the United States. And the only difference the United States, almost entirely public, uh, privately funded. Canada, almost entirely publicly funded. Everywhere else that outperforms us, they have a mix of whatever makes sense. Anyway, Mark Tui in for Evan Solomon. When we come back, the Prime Minister is hiding his plane. Is that actually keeping him any safer? We'll find out.
If they said it, we'll call them on it. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui in for Evan Solomon. We are going to talk about the Prime Minister's airplane and how they are trying to hide it from me and you, but more importantly, me, uh, and uh, whether or not that actually makes him uh, any safer, because national security interests definitely have to be considered. Uh, but first, let me remind you, if you want to listen back to the show or catch an interview you may have missed, or if you wanted to hear some of the great ideas that you produced uh, in the last segment, listen to the Evan Solomon Show podcast. It's on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, basically wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can subscribe to our show to keep up with all the latest news you need to know. And if you want to know uh, when and where Evan Solomon will be and what he's going to be saying, listen to uh, or follow him on Twitter. That's what I do, at Evan Solomon Show, uh, and you can do that. Um, we are searching for my guest at the moment. Um, the I'm going to anyway. I will introduce the topic, and if uh, if we can't get our guest, then uh, we will uh, we will go through in any case, and you can pretend that you didn't know that there was ever any other plan. Uh, this came up because of a tweet that I saw last night. Uh, aircraft not blocked on flight. This is from Brian Passifume, who is a reporter with the National Post, previously with the uh, Toronto Sun. And one of the things that Brian is brilliant at is the tech stuff. It is the uh, what, uh, what we would talk about as uh, flight awareness things. He tracks airplanes and is able to do that in real time using all sorts of stuff that you and I could do if we had the time or the inclination or could figure it out. And uh, on FlyAware, radar tracker, all of that kind of stuff. So he often is able to write stories, as he has done in the past many times, talking about, uh, oh, all sorts of things. Like uh, a year ago, when he was with the Toronto Sun, talking about uh, flight tracker used to show where the prime minister was. And, uh, you know, that caused an embarrassing story for the prime minister to answer because the prime minister uh, was supposed to be in Ottawa. That's what his itinerary said. But he was, in fact, in Tofino, B.C., when probably if he was going to be anywhere other than Ottawa, maybe should have been at the first Truth and Reconciliation Day ceremonies, and a holiday brand new that he created. Anyway, that plus uh, a bunch of stories about how far he flies, how often he flies, that is an embarrassment for the prime minister. So uh, I found it interesting last night to see a tweet from Brian Passivium, who pointed out that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz arrived in Montreal last night. We knew that there was going to be a meeting of the two heads of well, head of state and head of government, and uh, that it was going to happen last night. His aircraft, call signed GAF, probably German Air Force, I would bet, 951, was tracked on flight tracking software. We knew when he landed. Uh, we also knew that the Prime Minister took off in his Challenger, tail number 144620, to fly from Ottawa to Montreal last night to meet the German Chancellor. But we couldn't track that one on the, ra- on the radar. Why? Well, it turns out, as Brian Passivium had written uh, a couple of, about a month and a half ago, that uh, the Canadian government asked the American government to help them block the ability of these apps to track the Prime Minister's plane. Why would they want to do that? Well, the Air Force says, well, we don't talk about that. And we are discussing it, but haven't done anything. And yet it's already happened. So somebody clearly did something about it. 
But I would presume my natural instinct is, well, that's national security. We don't want terrorists with, you know, javelin missiles and sort of ground-to-air missiles and bombs to know where the prime minister's plane is because we don't want him to get hurt. And that's a reasonable expectation. But then I started wondering, how safe is he? Just if I don't see him on my app, does that mean terrorists can't see him? Stefan Watkins is uh, my guest. He's an open source research consultant, and he tracks this stuff even more diligently than uh, Brian Passifium. You'll see his name in many stories written about where airplanes are and why they're there. Uh, Stefan, welcome to the program. Thank you. I think Brian and Brian's keeping up pretty well. I think we're neck and neck. He's catching up to you. <laughs> you have taught him well. Uh, <laughs> so let me ask you, let me put it to this way. We can't see now on these popular apps where the prime minister's plane is or perhaps any other Canadian forces plane is. But does that actually make him safer or can well, bad guys still figure out where he is? I think you hit the nail on the head on on some of the applications and some of the more popular applications you can't see them but uh on some of the smaller ones some of the more crowdsourced ones you can so the way that the Canadian government had asked the FAA to try and shield us from seeing the uh, where the prime minister is traveling is through a list that the FAA uh, maintains and partners with the FAA commercial partners like flight radar FlightAware, RadarBox, uh, they get a feed from the FAA as well as their own independent sources of where these planes are. And the deal with the FAA is that they get this feed, but if the FAA says that they don't want something tracked, they need to scrub it. So if you were just a a crowdsourced, open source um, tracker like ADSB Exchange or SkyAware, they still track them all because it's just crowdsourced. We uh, myself and you know thousands of others have antennas in the, on our roofs or up the of a tree for me, and uh, we track the planes that are flying by. And so that's and how air network. traffic control makes sure that planes don't smash into each other, right? I mean, this exactly. most civilian air radar doesn't actually send out a ping that bounces off the fuselage and comes back. They're listening for these transponders. So if if the prime minister's plane just switched switched off all of its transponders, it would be invisible, and that probably would be a threat to his safety. Uh, it would, it would, he would have a different problem. Then, then other planes wouldn't see where he is, and that would cause like a, a flight problem. So for uh, the, Canadian, the Canadian forces told me a couple years ago that as long as they're in Canadian airspace, they don't hide where they're moving. They don't make any, any effort to. And I guess things have changed. But internationally, they, you know, when they fly Hercules into Iraq, they go from one mode of using their transponder, which broadcasts their exact location, to a more subdued mode that will identify to air traffic control, but won't identify to everybody else exactly where they are. So they are making some steps to hide their locations. But for the prime minister, the, the plane is broadcasting loud and clear for everybody here exactly where they are. Because we don't want other planes to bang into him. Exactly. Right. Uh, So having the government asking, and we've seen the emails, to have uh, Canforce One, how imaginatively named that is, uh, to be removed from this FAA list, that doesn't really prevent bad guys from knowing where that airplane is. It just makes it moderately more inconvenient, I guess, for journalists. That's correct. And that's kind of my my objection to it, is if we're going to secure the prime minister and we're serious about his protection, then really they should be doing something more than that. And I don't think it's really as much of a problem as some people have made it out to be. Uh, the rest of the world, 
operates in the same way. Uh, the Air Force One plane, that, I mean, the plane that is sometimes Air Force One, those big 747s that the, uh, the president flies around in, we can find that using the same plane trackers, the same independent crowdsourced plane trackers. Just, is it also you know, on that, that sort of uh, shadow list, Air Force uh, One? Air Force One technically isn't. Uh, hmm. I checked the other day, and it wasn't on it. But they, they just don't broadcast that it's Air Force One anymore. They okay. hide the radio call sign from the transponder. So if you knew what the plane was, like the tail number of the plane, you can still find it. Interesting. Thanks very much, uh, Stephen Watkins. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Have a good day. Stefan is an open source research consultant. You can follow him on Twitter and just learn fascinating stuff about uh, all that information that is available to people who know where to look for it. I'm not included. I know to look at Stefan Watkins. He's my go-to guy. But it sounds like we're trying to protect the Prime Minister of Canada to a greater degree from a broader series of threats than the Americans are protecting the U.S. president. Something doesn't seem right about that to me. I think this is more about avoiding embarrassment than it is about avoiding a physical security threat to the prime minister. But maybe that's just me. We're going to take a short break on the Evan Solomon Show. When we return, we're going to talk with uh, an Ontario mayor who has put a bounty on the head of an evil, wily coyote. They have tracked down a tracker who is going to hunt this beast and perhaps waterboard it because they want to learn some information from it. And then perhaps, well, it might not end well for the coyote. We'll find out why when we return. Mark Tui. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. Now more from the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. It is Mark Tui sitting in for Evan Solomon today. Evan will be back with you tomorrow at his regularly scheduled time and place. Some of my best radio ideas come to me through the magic of Twitter, where last night I saw a tweet scroll by in my feed, the first line of which said this, we are devastated by this news and are leaving no stone unturned to ensure this doesn't happen to anyone else. That sounded interesting, especially when I looked to see who it was from. Marianne Mead Ward is the mayor of Burlington, Ontario. What is it that is happening in Burlington that is so devastating? Uh, then it gets more and more interesting. The next line of the tweet says, We have secured the services of a trapper to track and euthanize the coyote identified. It's very unusual for coyotes to attack, so we are also looking to understand what prompted the coyote to attack a person. My goodness, things are exciting in Burlington, unless you're the poor person or persons who were attacked by, apparently, a coyote. To help us get to the bottom of this, we are joined by Marianne Meadward. She is the mayor of the city of Burlington. Your Worship, welcome to the Evan Solomon Show. Thank you so much for having me. So, first off, what happened? Well, this was uh, a terrifying and uh, and and very devastating uh, situation for a family, um, and it's the second attack by a coyote in Burlington. But this is the one that uh, I was referring to, and I've provided more details on my webpage about the actual incident. But a two and a half year old child was sitting in his backyard. Uh, on uh, on the family's um, you know veranda porch uh, furniture, he wanted a drink of water. His father was with him. Uh, the father went inside the house to get a drink of water for his son uh, and heard screaming. 
and ran outside. Uh, the child was on the ground, and uh, he noted the father noticed blood, and then he noticed puncture marks around the child's neck. And then he looked up and saw a very large coyote in their backyard. This is a fenced backyard. There were no small animals. There was no food out. The coyote saw this child as its next source of food. And it could have gone uh, very, very badly for that child and that family had the coyote been successful in dragging the child off. This was a fenced yard. The coyote jumped the fence, and so the child uh, had to go, obviously, immediately to our local hospital, Joseph Brent Hospital, to be treated. Uh, He was treated and released, but now he's got multiple rounds of rabies uh, shots to endure, which are no fun uh, for anybody, and and certainly not for the child. The the family is traumatized. I mean, the, the neighborhood, the community is traumatized around, does this mean I can't go in my backyard? Uh, at, at all. I, people don't feel safe. And, and this is very, very unusual behavior for coyotes. They don't typically attack people, uh, including uh, small people, as this child was. So this is a first uh, for us. We've been uh, dealing with coexisting, if you will, uh, with co- coyotes for um, for many, many years. We have never had a report like this. So, so the, the, the child was targeted by this coyote, and so the the, the father got a good look at it. Uh, we were able to, uh, through some of our bylaw animal control people, immediately went out. Uh, were able to identify with the help of the father this particular coyote, and uh, we are now uh, we have secured the the uh, services of a trapper to. Um, to track it and to euthanize it. And so you said this was the second incident, although yes. the most serious. What happened before and when? There was, uh, it was about a week or two ago, a woman was jogging early morning, did not have a small pet with her. It wasn't dark. Uh, we have, we are blessed with many uh, lovely trails in our city that are forested. Uh, she was jogging along a path and her, and felt something jump up on her back and bite her bite her neck again. Um, similar similar attack, and we believe it uh, was probably the same coyote based on uh, what she said and how she identified uh, to our animal control. Uh, wow. And the coyote jumped on her multiple times. That's amazing. Uh, on the back. So, uh, again, people are concerned about, you know, what we have been telling our, our residents is, you know, haze them, stay away from them. They don't typically approach. They'll stay away from you, scare them off. Uh, clearly, this particular coyote has not only no fear of uh, humans, but is uh, behaving aggressively um, and, and sees humans as uh, either a threat or, or, or a meal. Hmm. It's terrifying. I'm talking with uh, Burlington, Ontario, Mar- Marianne Mead Ward. Uh, Mayor Ward, you mentioned uh, as we were just speaking that you've gone out and hired a tracker. To be honest, that was an equally interesting part of your mm-hmm. tweet to me. Where did I looked on LinkedIn? I looked on Kijiji. Where do you find a tracker? Uh... That's a good question for our animal control staff. There, there are people who uh, specialize in tracking wild animals, and so uh, our animal control staff uh, worked with, um, well, they, they secured that services. We also are in touch with the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry because, of course, wildlife management and the regulations around wildlife management fall under 
MNR, and there are things that we can do and can't do as a municipality. And so I do want to be clear that, you know, Burlington is not out to, to call all our coyotes and get rid of them. This is a rogue coyote that we uh, are, are very uh, disturbed by the behavior. It is out of uh, the ordinary. It's a large coyote, so a, a huge threat to public health and safety. Uh, but most of the coyotes who live here and across the GTA really are not, uh, they don't present that kind of a threat to us. So um, so when the, you find this coyote, what happens to it? Uh, the, typically, they will dart it to sedate it, and it's euthanized. Uh, you can't just move a coyote like this somewhere else. We don't want another neighborhood to be right. subjected to this. We're not going to, you know, drop it off at the border of Oakville and Burlington and let them deal with it. We need to... We need to um, uh, euthanize this uh, this particular and presumably uh, find out whether it has rabies or anything well, well, else. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, in both cases, because you can't wait uh, f- for us to, you know, you can't wait to track the coyote and, and take the risk that uh, that we've found the right one. So both uh, the adult and the child uh, preemptively uh, got rabies treatment, and that is that is nasty. That nobody yeah, wants to go through that. unpleasant. Very unpleasant, very painful. Huh. Well, it sounds like you're on top of this. I hope that you're able to find this animal and uh, put it down and find out, hopefully, that it doesn't have rabies. But I imagine uh, that's well, sold us a little bit too late, perhaps, uh, for the victims. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, you're very welcome. I appreciate the interest and uh, the ability to spread awareness. Yeah, uh, Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward on uh, a coyote that it sounds like the same animal has attacked uh, two different people. One woman who jumped on her back while she was running in the, uh, I guess, in the countryside, repeatedly bit her in the back of the neck. And then a young two-and-a-half-year-old uh, child on the back porch of his own home in a fenced yard uh, starts screaming. His father comes out having been inside only for a minute, enough time to get a glass of water and finds his son bleeding on the ground from the neck. A coyote uh, sort of uh, slinks away, obviously was looking for God knows what, uh, rabies shots when you have to get if, – if you haven't had your rabies shot, the vaccination type, get it uh, because you definitely don't want to have to take the rabies shots to make sure after you get bitten, if you get bitten. Also, if you look uh, up, most cities have this, but the Burlington mayor's uh, office has put out a list of things to do if you see a coyote. Always worthwhile checking that out. We're going to take a break at the top of the hour. When we come back to the Evan Solomon Show, we're going to check in on RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky and find out what she's telling the commission in Halifax. Instant access to real people, real stories. The Evan Solomon Show is on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So as I speak, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky is uh, testifying at the Nova Scotia mass uh, casualty investigation into the 2020 mass murder where Gabriel Wartman decided that he was going to dress up like an RCMP officer, drive around in a replica police car, and he ended up killing over 20 people. Uh, They're trying to get to the bottom of how that happened, what the police did, what their role is in it, and whether or not they should have done a better job, both in terms of the response uh, to the attack, but also in the way that they communicated with the public. Uh, At the time, you will remember that the, uh, the timeline 
kind of went like this. The first uh, call came into the police just after 10 p.m. on uh, April 18th of 2020, and they were told about a shooting in rural Porta Peak, Nova Scotia. Officers attended that scene, got there at 1026. You remember, the, this is out in the woods, so they, uh, you know, the police are thinly spread. It takes them a while to get to place. They found bodies on the roads and in homes as well as buildings. A total of 13 victims were found deceased there. And then over the next many hours and into the next day, there was a rabbit hunt looking for this criminal. Eventually, they tracked him down to a gas station just outside of, uh, uh, where was it, uh, at Millbrook? Uh, no, pardon me. Anyway, so they found him at a gas station and uh, he engaged the police officers and was shot dead. What's become a political controversy, though, is uh, suggestions from senior Mounties and senior civilian staff of the RCMP that Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, was under political pressure to get the Mounties to release information about the firearms that Gabriel Wartman used in his attack. Why does that matter? Well, because shortly thereafter, the federal government, the Justin Trudeau liberal government, decided that it was going to ban a number of what they called assault-style rifles, and they banned a list of about 1,500 of them. In notes taken by senior police officers and a civilian manager for the RCMP at a meeting, they all recorded Brenda Lucky, the commissioner, as saying she was disappointed that they hadn't yet released. This is some couple of weeks after the event. They had not yet released information about the weapons used because she was getting pressure to do so because it was important to an upcoming piece of legislation that the information be published. That has set off a firestorm in Ottawa about whether this is improper influence of the uh, government over the police because they're not allowed to do that in Canada. You got to let the police do policing. You're not allowed to tell them what to do. You're not allowed to put pressure on them. Federal government has been accused of doing that with the SNC Lavalin and the prosecution. A case you will remember that from a while ago. But my question for you is this. Today, Brenda Lucky spoke at the commission. What also happened at the same time is her lawyers released a 131-page record of her testimony uh, written in uh, depositions before. And in that, the Canadian press is reporting that Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, said she was not pressured by the government to do that, but that she pressured her subordinates who work for her that they should have released this information because she wanted to be more open with the public. The headline on the Canadian press story is, Commissioner says police need to be more transparent. And that's the question that I'm interested in your take on right now on the Evan Solomon Show, one 1010 I think she's right. I'm not very happy with the transparency and the honesty, quite frankly, of police forces across Canada. And I think they need to do a better job. As an example, as much as whether this was political influence and it was inappropriate or not, I'll leave that for somebody else to decide. But here's the question with the Gabriel Wartman case. Why couldn't they tell us what kind of guns he used? You know, police generally don't want to talk about anything. If they had their way, they'd never answer a single question in public. Only in the courtroom. 
But that's not how a democracy works. That's not how trust and policing works. We have to trust our police are doing the right thing because we don't naturally trust that they're doing the right thing, especially when they're working in secrecy. So why couldn't the police? After the guy was killed, it's not like they're going to go to court and try him. He's not going to be convicted. The police say it might have jeopardized ongoing investigations. But what investigation? I mean, compared to what happens in the United States, where there are many things that we should not aspire to be, but had this attack happened in the United States, within days we would have seen the video from all the body cams the police would have worn. We would have seen pictures and had a detailed, you know, itemized list of all the weapons that he used. Why can't that happen here? If I look into Toronto, where I live, you know, a couple, not that long ago, Toronto police captured a murder suspect, somebody who they say murdered in cold blood two people with a legally owned handgun. That's interesting because that almost never happens in my entire lifetime. I can't remember the last time that happened. It, it does happen, but so rarely. So when the police also said, and this is the police chief's public statement, they said when police uh, broke into his house to execute the search warrant and the arrest warrant, they found this accused sitting on the floor of his apartment surrounded by a cache of guns. Well, what the hell is a cache of guns? What is that? Is that two guns? Is that one? It's probably more than one. Is that a hundred guns? To me, a cache of guns would be two, three hundred guns. How much is a cache of guns? Why would the police use that term, which is clearly designed to make us think, oh, this is a large number of guns, when you and I both know that the constable who attended that scene, the detective, that all of those officers on scene when that arrest happened were writing in their notebooks, they did not write down, oh, and the accused was surrounded by a cache of guns. No, somebody put that into that press release later on. The officers would have written down very specifically, what did we find? Well, we found one Glock 19, 9mm unloaded. We found one Smith & Wesson 686, you know, 357 caliber. They, They would have been very specific, so they would have known that. Why would they camouflage it to make it sound like a lot? That doesn't help my confidence in policing. Then, not long after that, Toronto police shot and killed a man after responding uh, to a man with a gun call near some Scarborough, Ontario high schools. That a guy was walking around with a rifle. They showed up. There was a guy with what looked like a long gun. He turned on them with that gun. They shot and killed him, and rightly so. But then for hours afterwards, the children in those high schools and the elementary schools nearby were locked down so long that kids were hung, you know, hovering underneath their, their uh, you know, hiding underneath their desks. They had to pee themselves because they were there so long. And it turns out the guy never had a rifle. The guy had a BB gun. He was no threat to them ever. And yet the spokesperson for the special investigation unit that investigates, you know, officer-involved deaths or injuries in Ontario said, uh, yes, it was a firearm. And no, she couldn't comment on the details. This was an hour and a half after the event. Many an hour longer after that, the police chief in Toronto said, you know, refused to comment on the type of firearm, but he acknowledged it was a fire. It wasn't. And they knew that. The police officers who shot him showed up. And, you know, they shot him and immediately rushed to give him CPR, tried to, to save his life. You know that in doing that, the first thing they would have done is reached in and pulled that rifle away from him. And the minute that they saw it close enough to touch it, they would have known it was a BB gun and not a rifle. And yet our police misled us for hours. They raised the fear 
They let kids pee their pants. They let parents live in terror that somebody was out to kill it. Why do they do that? It is time for police in Canada to be a little bit more responsible. It is time for police in Canada to be much more transparent, especially on things that threaten or appear to threaten public security. They're not doing a good enough job. And Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, is right. They do need to be transparent. So kudos to her for that. That's all I have to say on that. Ah, There you go. When we come back, we're going to change topics. We're going to talk about something later. Turns out that three-quarters of Britons, people who live in the UK, they would love to live the life of an American Western cowboy. Well, we have many businesses in Canada that allow them to do just that. We'll talk to one of them when the Evan Solomon Show returns. Paying close attention to your money, your world. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And today you're listening to the dulcet tones of me, Mark Tui, filling in for the aforementioned Evan Solomon, who is taking the day off. He'll be back with you uh, tomorrow. Uh, and yeah, we're following money. We're following the world. This story comes from across the pond, as they used to say. But if you are still looking for a vacation idea for you and the fam, well, lean into your radio, your smart speaker, your iHeartRadio app, whatever it is that you're using to listen to me right now, pay heed. Uh, A survey done in the UK commissioned by Paramount Plus, that's the company just, I'm sure, coincidentally, that produces the critically acclaimed series Yellowstone which is very popular. It's uh, set somewhere in the uh, western part of the United States. I've seen one episode. It's beautiful to watch. It was boring as paint drying. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure it gets more interesting. They they kill somebody at the end. So that makes it interesting. I I might tune in to find out who it was. Anyway, I digress. Apparently, Yellowstone is so popular that it has uh, Brits, three-quarters of them, that is three out of every four, if you're following along in the home math game, uh, would love to give up their daily life in the United Kingdom to become a cowboy in America. Seriously. It also emerged that 30% of them are so excited by the idea of a cowboy life that they want to go on a ranching holiday, while 50% enjoy just watching Western movies and TV shows. This struck a chord with me, because my mom, God rest her soul, her first job as a teenager, she left home in Kamloops, B.C., and she went to work in a dude ranch in the Rocky Mountains, where she went back every year and tourists would come to pretend to be cowboys and cowgirls. And they would spend time in a in a cabin and they would dress up in sort of Western clothes. They learned how to ride a horse. They spent time shoveling the, the feeding the horses and then shoveling out the remains of the food after the horses were done with it. Uh, and they paid people for the privilege of doing this. It was a popular vacation. Dude ranches. Well, I guess they're not called dude ranches anymore. They're called guest ranches. And it turns out it is still a popular vacation pastime. My guest joining us right now on the Evan Solomon Show is Tyler Beckley, owner of Three Bars Guest Ranch in Tata Creek, British Columbia. Tyler, where is Tata Creek? Uh, Well, good morning, or afternoon, I guess, where you are. We are in the southeast corner of B.C. We're actually just outside of Cranbrook, British Columbia. I know Cranbrook. Main range of the Rockies. 
So this is a guest ranch. So what happens at a guest ranch? Is this one? Do you get a lot of Brits coming? Because apparently they're all over this, although I had heard that the Germans love this, too. Yeah, we do, actually. We're pretty international, um, but we do get a lot of Brits, uh, depending on the currency sometimes. But we, um, we've had years that we've been as high as 50% British, actually. And uh, so what does one do on a guest ranch? How long do I, is a typical stay? What is a typical sort of uh, schedule for, you know, a week if you're going to spend the time there? Yeah, so all of my guests come for a week. Everybody arrives at the same time. Um, we all go through the week together. Um, my specific ranch, we, we accommodate about 50 people. Um, horseback riding is obviously the biggest attraction. So uh, we've got about 120 head of horses on the place. And rides are go out every morning and every afternoon. We teach people how to ride and, and give them a little bit of taste of kind of what Western, Western riding and lifestyle is like. Um, and then, obviously, we're, we're an adventure ranch, so we've evolved over the years. And we do everything from um, shooting sports, whitewater rafting, fly fishing, ATVs, gold panning, uh, basically uh, your full mountain adventure package all in one spot. That's cool. And so who are your typical guests? Are they singles that come, or is it couples? Is this a family activity? It changes a little bit through the season. So my, my May-June tends to be more, more adults. Um, and then June, July, August, obviously when school's out, we're, we're pretty heavy to families. And then September, we kind of roll back into that adult, uh, those adult groups again. And do people come in the wintertime? We don't. We, we actually close for the winter. Yeah, because I would imagine there would be a, a heaping stack of snow in that part it of is, British Columbia yeah, at the wintertime. The pictures of riding in the winter are great. It's just not nearly as, as enjoyable as you might think. Yeah, I can imagine. How much snow would you get there? Eh, we maintain a couple feet during the winter. Okay, well, that's not too bad. I'm from uh, Kamloops, BC, and I used to do a lot of work up in the Coquihalla, and you'd get like 10 feet, uh, 10 feet of snow there easy on a, on yeah, a slow we're, year. Yeah, we're not quite that severe, so we're, we're a little more mild where we're at here. So what surprises, how many people take to horseback riding? Because it is something that looks really easy on television, but not so much in real life. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, I, I think most of my guests actually end up riding more than they anticipate. So we offer, you know, we offer a, a ton of other options, and um, guest ranches have evolved significantly over the last 30 years, you know, a lot 30 years ago, you went to a ranch, you rode every day all week, and, and that's really all that there was to offer. Um, you know, and modern family now, you're going to have some people that are interested in horses, um, but that's why we have all the other stuff for, for the rest of the family where maybe horses aren't their thing. Um, but overall, I would say most of my guests actually end up riding more than they had anticipated. So um, if you have a little bit of instruction and, and good horses, obviously, it makes the whole experience much more enjoyable. So if I've never ridden before and I'm there for a week, I'm imagining day one, day two, I'm on the horse. Day three, I'm in mortal agony from uh, saddle sores because I don't know how to ride a horse. When do I get better? When do you get better? Um, it depends a little bit. Everybody's a little different. Um, but I, I would say a third of my guests have never ridden before or have ridden very little. And by midweek, you're starting to kind of break over and, and it's becoming a little more pleasant. 
And you mentioned uh, whitewater rafting, which I've done, which is uh, incredible amounts of fun, especially, well, <laughs> only if you have a good guide who knows what they're doing because none of the guests ever do. And I was only ever sort of a guest of a whitewater rafting thing. But you mentioned shooting sports. Do Brits and Europeans take to shooting sports or is that something that they just, you know, hands off? Um, a huge percentage of my clients now partake in the shooting sports. Um, and it is, I'm a big shooter myself. And um, we, it's obviously all in a very safe and controlled environment. And it is, when it's done safely, it is, um, it's great to see people that have, you know, never shot before get exposed to, um, exposed to the sport. And it, it's a huge attraction. Yeah. I'm talking with Tyler Beckley. He's owner of uh, Three Bars Guest Ranch in Tata Creek, BC. Uh, this after a survey in the UK said uh, three quarters of Brits would uh, give up their daily life to become a cowboy in the U.S., uh, have you ever had a guest actually give up their regular job and decide to become a cowboy somewhere? You know, there's there is a trend within the industry. There's a lot of um, a lot of people that, as they kind of you know leave corporate world, they um, will move west and and even you know buy a property like mine and uh, kind of semi-retire. I think they believe they're going to semi-retire. Maybe don't. Don't anticipate how much work it's going to be, but um, absolutely, I, I would say there's a, a large number of people that, um, that as they as they can, kind of transition to this this lifestyle. Uh, just about out of time, uh, Tyler. But another survey on the same story that I saw out of the UK says that uh, Brits, uh, their top ten phrases from cowboy culture that Brits use in their everyday life: "Howdy, howdy, partner, make hay while the sunshine," all at the top of the list. But one that I had never thought of as a cowboy uh, saying is "yellow belly." Where does that come from? Uh, yellow belly. That would be a coward. So. Um... Yeah, I, I, yellow belly. I, I don't know where the origin would be, but I, I know the meaning. Yeah, I've heard of it. I've used it, but uh, I don't know where it comes from. Anyway, where can people find out more about uh, your ranch? Absolutely, we are Three Bars Guest Ranch. Uh, website's easiest. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, we're easy to find. Three Bars Guest Ranch. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Tyler Beckley owns a guest ranch in British Columbia where uh, a bunch of Brits and Germans and even the Japanese, they love their cowboy Western stuff. Uh, I grew up in B.C. in Kamloops, and for years, one of the most popular tourist attractions there was a cattle drive where tourists from all over the world would come. You get 200 people on horseback for the first time uh, driving about 15 to 50 cattle cows over a four or five day trek and it was quite the thing with uh it was just a lot of fun it was entirely for tourists but apparently they don't do that anymore when we come back after the break the evan solomon show is going to tackle a brand new story out of toronto yet one more elite private school caught with a sex scandal we'll get to the bottom of that on the iheart radio talk network Bringing the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. Mark Tui in for uh, Evan. He will rejoin you at his regularly scheduled appointment uh, beginning again tomorrow. So just meet today. Some of you will remember the saga from St. Michael's College School in Toronto that started back in 2018 with uh, an assault uh, against one of, uh, well, five of the students there 
were uh, alleged then to have assaulted one of their peers in 2018. They were members of the same team. And uh, the allegations included uh, basically gang rape of uh, a young man by his so-called peers, friends, uh, with a broom handle. Uh, it went to court. They were charged criminally. All were convicted and sentenced to two years of probation. Uh, fast forward to today and news exclusively uh, sort of broken by the uh, Toronto Star that yet another storied Toronto school, this one Upper Canada College, has been involved in a lawsuit alleging a similar type of attack against one of its students. A student has sued Upper Canada College saying that uh, he was on a school trip to an outdoor education centre several years ago when an in, a, in an unsupervised cabin with other students when two classmates sexually assaulted uh, uh, another with a broomstick. Again, I don't know where the broomsticks keep coming from. Who carries a broomstick with them? Uh, the allegations have been denied by the school and by all of the defendants, but the whole thing was under a sort of cloak of secrecy until a uh, upper court of appeal, Ontario's court of appeal judges, uh, decided they agreed with the Toronto Star that it actually sort of intervened in this case, saying, the star argued that it was fine to keep the uh, the names of the accused because they're minors and the victim because he is allegedly a victim uh, private and confidential. That made sense to them, but it didn't make sense that they would court would protect the school from being known that this was happening. The Ontario Court of Appeal has decided that they are right. And so today we're able to talk about this lawsuit for $5 million against Upper Canada College, one of the most prestigious and elite private schools in Canada, perhaps certainly in Ontario, helping me to sort of understand what the heck is going on in private schools. My guest is uh, Dave Trafford. He's chief executive producer at Story Studio Network. Uh, you may very well have heard his voice uh, in one form or another on this radio device, smart speaker that you're listening uh, to me now. Uh, more importantly for this story, though, he was a former news director, longtime journalist. I'm not saying he's old, uh, but also a St. Mike's alumnus and commented extensively during the St. Mike's scandal. Dave, welcome to the Evan Solomon Show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Good to talk to you. So I never went to a, uh, a private school, and I know St. Michael's hasn't always been a private, private school. It was just sort of a school that kind of had a specially, you know, broadly recognized, uh, you know, sports program that eventually kind of worked itself into a, a bit of a private school. But when I hear news of this coming out of Upper Canada College again, you're an alumnus of a, of a fairly elite school, even if it wasn't necessarily private when you went there. What do you think? Did do we learn nothing about you know what to do and and how to behave from this past experience with St. Mike's? Yeah, for a while the um, the the Catholic high schools in Ontario uh, were covered by uh, provincial taxes, so that that they were treated similarly to the public school. But uh, in the dying days of the Bill Davis uh, government. Uh, they decided to extend full full funding to all of the um, Catholic schools. So that meant from grade 9 to grade 13 in those days, they were all public schools. St. Mike's decided at that point that they would be entirely private. So when I was there, the first year or two was funded publicly. After that, you paid tuition. So kind of a hybrid circumstance. But having said that, I, I think when we experienced and saw what happened at St. Mike's back in 2018... 
uh, the the biggest criticism was that the principal of the school at the time decided to conduct uh, sort of an internal investigation to see what was going on. And then that, of course, hit the fan and it became an issue. The the concern was that it wasn't brought to the attention of police right away. Um, So here we have that culture growing up in this in in this environment particularly around the football program and it was really interesting to see first of all the the, the fury on the response uh, on both sides because the alumni got involved parents got involved certainly the faculty and former faculty would have gotten involved in what went on at St. Mike's and initially there were some really hard divides among people in that community and talking about what should have been done and what could have been done. And I attended a couple of the town hall meetings, and I was you know, quite appalled by the fact that there were so many people willing to give the administration a pass on this, as indicating that you know we expected when we sent our kids there or when we were kids there that we left this gymnasium as graduates uh, as leaders, and that we, we expected that you were here growing leaders, and, and right now the school didn't uh, exercise a whole lot of leadership on how they handled it. Fast forward, you've already explained that this has gone through the courts, and I think that that's really critical, and that it was, it was transparent, it was covered uh, extensively in the media, and then they did a great job at it. On the other side of it is, though, St. Mike's, where they went right here, is they conducted a third party, a review committee that went in and looked at the culture and respect culture at the school. And they came up with a very thorough report. It's like 140 pages or something. And they've got all kinds of these very specific recommendations and acknowledgements of how this happened, where it happened, who wasn't paying enough attention to it. And it was it was done by looking at the folks who were all stakeholders, so it was alumni and students and former students, um, staff members, people who worked at the school previously. It was really a robust 360 view of what was going on. And I think that what they came away with was a great working plan in terms of how to deal with this. And not just to how to deal with the crisis, but how do you identify it and create yeah. a culture where we do not have this circumstance? And so for a while, the program, the football program, was shut down. And even at the uh, advice of the committee saying, um, you know, we think you could probably reinstate the football program. The school was slow to actually do that. They wanted to make sure that it was done correctly. Were there bumps along the way? Sure. So So the difference for me between these two is that we've got a case here that where the, the school UCC had court protection from being identified. So again, I can see how alumni and parents are, you know, they want the heck here. Um, how is it that this was going on? Yeah, I was going to ask you and, about that. And, I mean, and, and nobody paid any attention to it. What's the culture in one of these schools? Can you, I mean, you don't have any particular insight into UCC, Upper Canada College. I mean, this is not a criminal case. It's a civil lawsuit. Uh, but still, my only experience with private schools is that the parents kind of own the place. And so if I was a parent and I didn't know about this, I would be upset. And if I did know about this, you should be upset with me. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that, you know, you go back to learning, uh, and I think it was 2005, there was a former teacher at UCC who was convicted of uh, a sex assault or abusive behavior towards a number of students. And there were about a nine or a dozen uh, former students that had uh, made allegations against this particular teacher, went to court, and he was convicted. So at that point, 
they came out at UCC, as I recall, and said, here are our marching orders. Here's what we're going to do to ensure that this culture is does not exist. And in fact, that we recognize it. So my question would be, as if I were an alumni or a parent there, or even a staff member, okay, what did we not learn from that very public case that happened back in 2005? And why aren't we following that playbook right now? Yeah, no, of course, none of these allegations have been proven in court. But is this the kind of thing, and I've only got about 40 seconds left, is, is this going to deter people from sending their kids to this school, or is this just part of the process? Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I'm not sure you can separate those two things. But for the purposes of context, it, you know, there were news releases that came across my desk, you know, once a month, and, and it would have been a teacher or a principal at a school anywhere in Ontario that was accused of some, you know, inappropriate behavior. So this is not particular to you know, the private school sector at all. But I think to your point, when you're paying the kind of cash that you are paying to make sure that your kids are there and in a safe environment, and it would appear as though there is some serious confusion or miscommunication around this, at least, I'd be a little worried. Dave Traffer, Chief Executive Producer at Story Studio Network, the guy behind many of your favorite podcasts. Thanks for your time today. Good to talk to you, Mark. Dave used to be a news director in uh, Toronto at News Talk 1010, covered uh, a lot of these stories. That's why we wanted to talk to him. When we come back, it turns out when you're in space, people can hear you scream. Alien, the movie, when it first came out, it said right in the poster, in space, no one can hear you scream. But it turns out now, scientists who ruin everything from NASA have said, no, yeah, people can hear you scream, depending on where you are. There's a story out of NASA that says basically that, because I guess space isn't as empty in some places as we thought it was. Well, whenever I have questions about what's going on over my head and what's likely to fall out of the overheads onto my head, ending my life prematurely, I turn to one man, and that man is my guest. He is Paul Delaney, Canada's favorite astronomer, Professor Emeritus, because he's that good of physics and astronomy at York University. Paul, black holes make sound? <laughs> well, technically, I guess the answer has to be yes. I wouldn't want to be that close to a black hole to hear it, though. Uh, so put, putting that right out there, that's far too close to a black hole for my life. So they do make that. We have some audio purportedly of an actual black hole probably sending us a message. This from NASA. It sounds like this. That sounds scary. That's creepy, Paul. I, I don't really want to be close enough to hear that. But how can a black hole make sound? I thought it was in space surrounded by nothingness. I thought there needed to be somethingness in order to vibrate my eardrums. How can I hear this? Okay, so you're absolutely right. Sound is what we call a mechanical wave, and it requires a physical medium to propagate. So you and I are hearing each other because air molecules are vibrating and that energy is being transferred to our eardrums. Your brain interprets that. You can hear. 
in space, in large measure, it is a vacuum, and therefore sound waves cannot propagate. But in and around a black hole, there is what we call an accretion disk. So there is a significant increase in the amount of material compared to the regular space environment. And so around a black hole, its accretion disk, when there, are, uh, when there is energy being propagated through that accretion disk, because it is rotating and stuff is bumping into each other, there is enough density for waves to propagate a la sound waves. Now, there are a couple of things here. The frequency, if you were able to stand near that black hole, which we've both agreed is not a good plan, but if you were there and you were tuning your ear, you still wouldn't hear it. So what NASA has picked up is, in fact, vibrations. They have picked up energy waves, which are at a very, very low frequency, below what the human ear would be able to hear. And then they have taken that undulation of waves and they've moved it into the audio frequency range that the human ear could hear. They call that process sonification. It, it's a way to take what is inaudible to the human ear and give you some appreciation of the way sound could be uh, heard if you had the sensitivity at the original frequency. So does that mean they actually captured some of this waviness yeah, from a yeah. black hole and they're just sort of upscaling it so I can hear it? I kind of assumed that's, that's that right. maybe they were just modeling this based on a theory. No. No, no, no. This is not a model. This really is energy fluctuations which are propagating through that accretion disk and the very, very dusty uh, environment around the black hole. It's a black hole in the constellation of Perseus, by the way, about 240 million light years away. Oh, that uh, one. Yeah, that one. It's your favorite one, right? Yeah. Uh, so it is an actual wave propagation, which they have detected. But as you indicated, you can't hear it. So they've moved that to a region where you could hear. So that is not the real frequency, but the way it ebbs and flows, the, the peak energies and how it changes from moment to moment, that's all real, but at a different region of the spectrum, they've just moved all of that into the audio area so you can hear it. Okay. So then am I uh, going out on a limb here to say that NASA's done something similar but with visual uh, sort of wavelengths when the James Webb telescope is now giving us amazing uh, pictures of Jupiter, but they're not in the visible light spectrum. They've somehow shifted, uh, I don't know, what is it, infrared, and they're really cool, but what do they tell us? Yeah, very good. You know, you are really paying attention to these conversations. Like, this is fabulous. It really is. You know, I want a course credit. Pay. Yeah, absolutely. Not a problem there. But that's exactly right. Whenever we are looking in parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that your eye is not sensitive to, we can translate the variations that we are seeing, in this case in the infrared, into visible colors. And that's what the latest image is showing Jupiter and a couple of its satellites and its ring system and the aurora. All of that information is giving us a much broader view, if you will, not just a close-up view, but a broader view of the Jovian system and how all of the differing parts are interacting. And yes, it's in the infrared area of the spectrum, which normally your eye can't see. You could feel some of that energy, so as to speak, you know, that sunlight. You can feel the, uh, the energy from the sun, but you uh, can't necessarily see that energy that warms your skin. 
same sort of idea here. We're looking at variations in the, the heat, if you will, that's being given off by different areas of the Jovian system. Uh, and in fact, it's actually in multiple different wavelengths. It's actually a reasonably complex image that we've been given. But the bottom line to it is that you can attribute colors to those. And now your eye is drawn to the variation in color. And that variation tells us something about the the physics that's happening in the Jovian system. So the color differences actually mean something. It's not just an artist's rendering of, oh, I'm imagining what it might look like in infrared. No, that is correct. Uh, it's not just purely false color for the sake of, oh, let's pick a blue and let's pick a yellow. And so They are telling us about, well, on the image that you've probably seen, the great red spot, that huge cyclonic circulation, of the storm on Jupiter that is you know, twice the size of the Earth and it's been around for 400 years. You can see it's a bright white. That is actually at a much higher level in the atmosphere of Jupiter than a lot of the other darker colors. So there is a, uh, a size or a, an altitude gradient from bright to dark, oh. for example. So the dark stripes, I'm not looking at a black stripe on the on the top layer of clouds. I'm looking through the higher level of clouds and, at something early, low? At much lower in the atmosphere. Fascinating. Yeah. Paul yeah. Delaney, you always amaze me. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Mark. Have a good Anything one. Anything falling on my head this weekend? No, no, you're fine. Okay. It's okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Paul Delaney is a Professor Emeritus of Physics and Astronomy at York University. And for, let's face it, folks, he's Canada's favorite astronomer. If you want to know what's going on way up there, you talk to Paul. He is the only go-to guy that's worth listening to. Uh, my name is Mark Tui. It's been a pleasure talking with you this afternoon on the Evan Solomon Show. If you want to find out uh, what Evan's up to, follow him on Twitter at Evan Solomon Show. That's pretty easy, right? You can follow me on Twitter, too, because if you're not already, you really should. I mean, come on, what's your excuse? I'm at Tui, T-O-W-H-E-Y. And if you like looking at pretty pictures, uh, I tweet some of those on Instagram under the same name, at Tui, T-O-W-H-E-Y, spelled exactly the way it isn't sound. Doesn't sound. Thank you very much to Andrew Pinsent for producing Tony Tedesco for running the board in uh, Toronto for this national smorgasbord of fun and uh, and just gallivanting. What can I say? Evan Solomon, yeah, he returns to his regular job tomorrow. Thank you so much. <laughs>